0: Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast, my name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Hallie Lieberman, a sex historian and journalist. She is the author of Buzz, A Stimulating History of the Sex Toy, and she is currently working on a book on the history of gigolos. Talk about a fun job, right? Today we're going to be talking all about sex toys. We'll be discussing a lot of really interesting things and one is whether this story so many of us have heard about the history of the vibrator is actually true. Specifically, were Victorian doctors really using vibrators on women who had been diagnosed with hysteria as a standard medical treatment? If you've ever heard that before, you're definitely going to want to hear what Hallie has to say about that. We're also going to chat about how sex toys have evolved over time, the future of sex toys, and common questions people have about them. For example, I often hear from women who read my blog who want to know whether they can become addicted to their vibrators. So we're going to dive into that issue. This is going to be a super fun and fascinating conversation. So let's get to it. Hi, Hallie, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast.
1: Hey, Justin, thanks so much for having me on. I'm so excited during the pandemic to be talking about fun things like dildos.
0: (laughs) Same here. I mean, (laughs) we should have been talking about this all along, but hey, better late than never. I'm really excited to have a chance to talk to you about sex toys because that's one of my favorite subjects. But before we get into that, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into studying and writing about the history of sex in the first place.
1: Yeah, so I've always been into sex as all human beings are. But as a teenager, I used to like talk loudly about masturbating among my friends and get really weird looks for it. And my friends would say like, are you lonely and stuff like that. And so, so that like led to me being interested like more intellectually in sex, like why people think a woman masturbating must be lonely, but a man didn't. So that that led me to be interested in it, and uh, I actually sold sex toys. Uh, you haven't sold sex toys, have you?
0: Not formally, no. Okay. I, I okay. mean, I, I've been a spokesperson for sex toy companies, but I haven't actually been in the business of selling them directly to consumers.
1: Okay. Okay. So that you're like sex toy sales adjacent. Exactly. Yeah, so I sold sex toys in Austin, Texas when I was getting my master's. I worked for a company called Passion Parties, which is like the Tupperware home party thing. But we sell sex toys. And at the time, it was illegal to sell sex toys in Texas. And so we were given all this like spiel, like don't call them vibrators, um, call them massagers, don't call the clitoris a clitoris, call it the man in the boat. Oh, jeez. I was- <laughs> So stupid. And I couldn't do it with a straight face. I remember the first time like I sold them, like I went to someone's house because you're in a stranger's house. And I'm like, and you rubbed the massager on the man on the boat. And I was like, oh my God. And I sighed. I'm like, I can't believe what, who I've become. So anyway, like, this experience and someone from my company was arrested for selling sex toys in 2004 while I was working for them. And that experience led me to study sex because I'm like, why are we so weird about everything?
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's true. We are very weird about sex specifically. And, you know, that's also part of the reason why I find the subject fascinating is like, where does all of that weirdness come from? Because sex is such a natural human instinct and drive. And and why does it have all of this? shame and all of these prohibitions and other things placed on it so i'm thankful to have people like you who are studying the history of sex and and helping us to trace how that has evolved over time and 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 see where it's going in the future but i'm curious to talk a little bit about your book buzz which is all about the history of sex toys specifically so why did you want to dive into that subject was it related to the fact that you had been a sex toy seller and had all these interesting observations about it or was there something else that made you want to dive into it
1: um yeah it was basically my experience selling them and my experience you know seeing in texas another thing you go into a sex toy store and there would be black bars like that you would see on a redacted document from the fbi except they'd be over the word dildo and vibrator and so that kind of stuff. I'm like, where did this come from? Is this recent? Have we always been like this? Like, and that really led me to, to dive into the history. I just wanted to know where the story began. That was my question and no one had that answer.
0: So let's talk about where the story began. How long have humans been using sex toys? What is the earliest known sex toy in existence that you were able to, to find out about?
1: Yeah, so the earliest sex toy, and I have to, it's 30,000 years old, the thing that looks like a sex toy, I have to couch it with that. These are stone tools from 30,000 years ago that were found in Germany, and these were phallic, and, and we don't, of course, we don't know how they were used, and some archaeologists say they were used as spear sharpeners because they have little, like, marks on the side, but they look like dick's. And so, like, there's no reason in my mind we need to sharpen spears on dicks like we don't you know, sharpen knives on dildos in the 21st century. So it was hard for me to believe that's what they're doing. And some people say that they were actually, you know, dildos as well. So that's kind of like the er dildo the oldest, oldest thing that some people are claiming is a sex toy.
0: So maybe they were multi-purpose, potentially. <laughs> well,
1: just like the vibrator today is sold as a back massager, and you do use it. Like my boyfriend will use the Hitachi Magic Wand on like his legs. And I'm like, what are you doing? That's for my clitoris only. <laughs> but yeah, they could have been multi-purpose.
0: Okay, so sex toys seemingly have been around for a long time of course as you mentioned there's a lot we don't know about exactly what people were doing with some of these artifacts and so forth but something else i'm curious about in terms of you know you taking this deep dive into the history of sex toys was there anything that really surprised you over the course of your research you know for example were there any older toys or maybe advertisements for toys that you came across and you were just kind of like What the fuck is that? And I say this because, you know, when I look at some things in the history of, like, sexual health and wellness products, I have those WTF moments. Like, for example... Lysol used to be marketed as a feminine hygiene product and it's like you were literally telling women to put Lysol inside their vaginas which is a terrible idea and no one should do that but that's one of those things that makes me go what the fuck so did you have any moments like that as you were studying and diving into this?
1: Oh my God. I had so many of those and I'd be in archives and I'm a loud person, as you can probably tell from this podcast. And so I would see them. I remember looking at, um, and I would, I would scream or I'd go, ah, you know, and people would give me nasty looks and be like, no, I'm looking at a butt plug. Come on. So I was looking at this anal rectal dilator. I'm sorry. They were not called butt plugs then. A rectal dilator from like around 1905. And that advertisement said it would cure your asthma. And that was one of those screaming in the archives moments where I was like, oh my God, people believe this? Jesus. Like, and I don't know if people actually believed it, but it was really like, it was like you put, and it looked exactly like a butt plug today, a rubber butt plug. And they would say it would cure asthma and that it would also cure all your ales and stuff. Um, they, vibrators, I saw an ad that said vibrators cure deafness, that kind of thing.
0: Wow. I'm pretty confident that butt plugs don't cure asthma, but that <laughs> is really fascinating. But I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but part of my, my sense of this is that there were prohibitions against sexual aids and pornography and all of these things throughout history and so marketers had to come up with creative ways of getting their products into the hands of consumers and and they would do something along the lines of what you said where maybe they would tout some type of potential health benefit associated with it so that it was more of a medical product rather than a sexual product and we saw something similar with pornography where if it could be argued that it had artistic value, that it wasn't really porn. And so when you look at kind of the history of porn, you see that, you know, a lot of things that were distributed as pornography were designed and created to, to give them some artistic element. So it could be argued that it was art and not porn. like photos of naked women posing with fishing poles and other things like that (laughs) why would they be posing with a fishing pole just naturally because they weren't like actually fishing necessarily (laughs) does that reasoning make sense
1: oh my god it totally makes sense and sorry the fishing thing reminds me i'm writing a story on lesbian sugar babies and one of them was posing with a grouper (laughs) fully clothed and i was trying to figure i was asking my brother who was a who's a fisherman like what he thought about that and he was just like well that's a great grouper <laughs> but anyway back to like why they were doing it absolutely i mean we had laws anthony comstock who was like working with the postal service who was this censor who was super christian and actually went after i'm jewish so i'm always interested in this stuff he actually went after jews somewhat who were, uh, a a lot of Jews were in the rubber industry and were selling condoms and dildos. But anyway, he would look through advertisements all over the country and look to see if he thought something was a sex toy or a contraceptive. And he would raid the offices and and shut down the businesses. So you had to be super careful. So yeah, that's why butt plugs, one of the reasons they were marketed in this kind of like pseudo-medical way, vibrators, absolutely, and the guy who was doing this, marketing butt plugs this way, he had this theory of the orifice, like orificial theory of health, that everything was connected through like our anus, like all of our health problems. I mean, he may be right. <laughs> I mean, there might be some <laughs> truth. that. I'm not really, but you know. And anyway, other doctors were like, this is bogus. He's just using it to sell his, you know, rectal dilators. And some people said, oh. He's trying to promote uh, sodomy. So there were a few people during his time who were like, wait a second, this, this is weird. But that was one of the main reasons that they were marketed you know, in a non-sexual way.
0: Yeah, so since you mentioned laws regarding sex toys, let's dive into that a little bit further. I don't think a lot of people realize that throughout much of history and maybe even today i'm gonna ask you to weigh in on that that the sale possession and use of sex toys has been regulated by law in many places and i actually didn't realize this myself until i started teaching human sexuality courses in colleges and back in the day i used to have a representative from a company called pure romance which is another one of those like Sex toy Tupperware party kind of companies. They would visit my class to talk about sex toys, and the reps would tell us how they would have to do totally different presentations in different states in order to avoid being arrested. And it's not like they were putting on explicit shows or anything. They're literally just putting sex toys on display and talking about how they work. So it's not a live sex demo or anything like that. But In some places, they said they could only have all-female audiences, so no men allowed, or they could only have a certain number of toys with them, or they had to talk about the toys as novelty products instead of as sex toys. So, can you tell us a little bit more about those laws and whether you can still get in legal trouble today for selling sex toys?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so today, there's only one state that has anti-sex, thank God, and that it has anti-sex toy laws in the book, and that's Alabama. And you can still get in trouble, not for possessing them, but for selling them. So where I live in Atlanta, three years ago, it was still illegal in an Atlanta suburb to possess a sex toy. And this woman with multiple sclerosis, actually, who used sex toys and was open about it, actually had to like, sue the city to get that law overturned. I mean, this is three fucking years ago. Wow. It was like right around when I moved to Atlanta and I was like, you've got to be kidding. So it's very, very recent. We've gotten rid of these laws and you know, the time you were teaching, I'm guessing, was this the early or mid like 2000, like 2008 around then or 2005. Yep.
0: Right around then. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Because that was when, so in, in that time period, there were, eight to 10 states that had these laws and every law was different. Like in Texas, it was, if you had six or more dolos on you, it was an intent to sell. It meant an intent to sell. And it's like, haven't you ever heard of kink or, you know, anyone, you know, like <laughs> what the hell? So, yeah. And I mean, there were all these different laws. And so when companies like Trojan around that time came out with vibrating cock rings that they would sell with their condoms, there were certain states where they just couldn't sell them. Like Colorado was one of them, Mississippi, a lot of them were Southern. And in Texas, of course, Alabama. And so they just, uh, it was really, really crazy, this patchwork of laws. I mean, this is in the 21st century. It's like, what are we afraid of? It's really, it's really disturbing how, you know, it's that recent. And even today, there's still, you know, one state.
0: And there were some people, I believe I read in your book, who even in the 21st century were arrested for violating these sex toy laws, right?
1: Yeah, like like the woman who worked for my company. I mean, my this was 2004. And I mean, you know, I read all these articles. Joanne Webb, I believe was her name. And she, you know, I read these articles that said, oh, it was because she wore mini skirts to church. And so that's why she was targeted. It's like, why would you be target? Like, that's stupid. But whatever, she shouldn't have been arrested. And so, yeah, this was happening. And, you know, even if people weren't arrested, which they were, but not a ton of them, it was like, it had such a chilling effect. I mean, you saw in your classroom the pure romance woman, like changing presentations for everything. It had that kind of effect. And what, what it did was lead to poor sex education, more euphemisms, more shame. So even if no one gets arrested from the laws, It affects, you know, sexual knowledge and sexual education in a really bad way.
0: That is such a brilliant point and beautifully put is the way that those laws contribute further to all of this sexual shame that we already have. And so when you've got these further perceived taboos or prohibitions against talking about something just like sex toys openly, you know, that just makes talking about sex in general uh even more taboo and shameful and so the culture in which we're embedded plays a really 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 big role in how willing and open we are to communicate about sex and how easy it is to communicate about sex with our partners so glad to see that the laws have changed and that for the most part <laughs> we can talk about sex toys more openly in at least 49 states today <laughs> yeah yeah So I want to dive into the history of the vibrator specifically because I think it's such a fascinating subject. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, there's this popular story out there that emanates from a book called The Technology of Orgasm by Rachel Maines, which I read back in the day and I was fascinated. And she wrote that Victorian era doctors were using vibrators as Therapeutic devices on female patients who had been diagnosed with hysteria, which is a medical condition that has long since been debunked. And she claimed that pelvic massage, culminating in orgasm, was a staple of medical practice at that time, and that doctors started using vibrators on their female patients because it was a more efficient way of getting them to orgasm than doing it by hand. So, in other words, vibrators allowed physicians to cut down on the length of office visits and see more patients each day now this story has been immortalized in the popular media there was a movie about it called hysteria a little while back it's mentioned in a lot of textbooks and popular articles about the history of sex toys. I've even talked about it in my human sexuality classes. But as you discovered in the course of your work, that might not be what actually happened. So what's the truth there?
1: Yeah. So I'll get out of the way that there's no evidence that doctors were ever masturbating women to orgasms with vibrators to treat or cure hysteria found no evidence of this, and I know she uses the term paroxysm instead of orgasm mm-hmm. but anyway no, no evidence of this is it a great story yes it's an I know I story.
0: love it it's a great story
1: <laughs> yeah and and so why I mean so one of the reasons I was looking at this you know and I'm looking and I couldn't I'm looking through the archives and Yes, vibrators, some doctors use vibrators. A lot of times they would, they tried them, use them on people's backs, men and women, by the way. And they realized it didn't really do much. But if doctors had used them on women's clitorises like that, they would have been like disbarred. They would have been kicked out of the medical establishment. They might've been arrested. I mean, I found some cases, I found this woman who used a doctor whose husband actually like walked in, this was in Wisconsin, walked in the house in the early 1900s, found the lights off and found a doctor using a massager on his wife, using a vibrator. And uh, they were like naked. And then he like sued for divorce and she claimed it was like a health treatment. I mean, that, and that was more of like what the response would have been like, Oh my God. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, we, we weren't um, morons then, but this story has captivated people's attention, even though it's not based in truth. In fact, like the American Medical Association in 1905 said vibrators are delusion and a snare. And any reason for their popularity is about, you know, psychology and not about their effectiveness.
0: Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it pains me because that's my favorite story about the history of the vibrator, and I've talked about it a lot. Uh, I used to, you know, I've written about it on the blog. I used to talk about it in my classes, but now I got to go out and, and retract the story. So that was, you know, also part of my reason for having you here. Is you know, I've I've done some follow up posts on my blog, and you know, I just want to correct the record because once these ideas get out there, they they take hold and they kind of develop a life of their own and we kind of need those repeated attempts to correct the record and you know once those ideas get out there it becomes very hard to to change them because they just become so embedded and especially a story like that that's just so captivating <laughs> you <Yeah>. know
1: <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the thing is, I don't have a good story to replace it. I can't say, oh, no, here's the truth. Like female doctors were using penis pumps on male patients. So let's replace a story with something fun and, you know, sexy like that. There's no like sexy replacement. And that's that's one of the problems because it's more of a debunking. Like, what's the truth? doctors you know tried using vibrators for a bunch of things and they didn't work. Okay, that's boring compared to <laughs> women were getting off and having these awesome or- or- orgasms, but but again, I mean thinking about how this like reflects poorly like the story we need to know the truth about our history and the vibrator story really presents women as having no knowledge about their own bodies and that, that, you know, a doctor is giving them an orgasm and they, they've they, you know, it's assuming they've never had one before and not understanding that this would be sexual, not understanding that treatments on their genitals and thinking that they would have a paroxysm. And really, you know, that's the thing that bothers me about the myth is it makes women out to be, you know just just so ignorant. And yeah, they might not have had the names for their body, but they certainly knew that genitals were sexual. They had babies, you know? Like, I, that that's the part that frustrates me the most.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's a great point that you make about some of the other stereotypes and myths about women's sexuality that get propagated by us holding on to that false belief In the first place so yet another important reason why we need to correct the record so we have much more to discuss including how sex toys vary across cultures the future of sex toys and common questions people have about them but we're going to take a quick break from a word from our sponsor promescent has everything you need for amazing sex including their signature delay spray which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom it has target zone which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60 day money back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P R O M E S C E N T.com. And we're back. My guest today is Hallie Lieberman, and we're talking about the past, present, and future of sex toys. The next topic I want to dive into is how sex toys vary across cultures. I started to get really interested in this subject when I went to Japan a few years ago. I visited a number of sex toy shops in Tokyo for research purposes, of course, (laughs) because I'm always fascinated by how sex in general varies across cultures. But one of the things that I noticed there is that most sex toys don't look like the toys we have in the United States. For example, they aren't designed... To mimic the appearance of actual human body parts and in fact many of them look more like works of art and if you had them sitting around your house your guests wouldn't necessarily even know that they were sex toys so I'm curious Hallie what have you noticed or discovered about the way that sex toys vary cross-culturally whether in terms of the type of toy or the appearance
1: yeah, well, and by the way, I'm very jealous you've been to Japan. I really want to go there. You have to go. And, yeah, and see not only the sex toy culture, but the Japanese host culture with male hosts that women pay to have sex with them. But anyway, okay. What yes, if- and,
0: and the love hotels too. You know, the whole love hotel industry is fascinating, and I need to do a whole episode on that at some point as well.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, my God. I was just talking about those with someone recently. Love hotels. It's so interesting. But, yeah, so what I've noticed, and it's interesting you bring up Japan, because Japan has this, like, rich history of sex toys, like, in pillow books, which were instructions given to uh, married women in, like, the 1700s, 1800s. They would actually recommend sex toys for a married couple, which is something we were not doing in the U.S. So they've kind of had a more progressive view towards sex toys in some ways, but their history is interesting. And one of the reasons why their sex toys are so different is they had a law and I don't know if it's still in the books, but it was there in the seventies and eighties where anything that was shaped like the human genitals, any device was illegal. So their sex toys, like Japan was originator of the rabbit which is like, do you, you know the rabbit, right?
0: Of course.
1: Of course, of course. Duh, I'm sorry to offend you. Of course you know the <laughs> rabbit. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, which is made famous on Sex in the City, but they, they created these dual stimulation sex toys with clitoral and vaginal, and they all look like little animals, uh, or they had faces on them, most of them, so that they would look like dolls to get around the laws. So they have this rich history of, Making sex toys look like, you know, dolls or animals because of, again, it's laws shaping what sex toys look like. So that's one of the reasons they, they look so different than they do in the US. I think they're one of the most interesting like cultures as far as different looking sex toys
0: but now you got me thinking about okay so there were the laws and so they created these toys that you know looked like creatures or other things or had faces on them and then i'm also thinking about the whole world of anime porn and now i'm thinking was there is there a connection between the laws and then the toys and then the porn or did the porn precede this like i'm just like super fascinated now and i don't <laughs> know that you'd necessarily have the answer to that but it's just so interesting again to look at how sex varies cross-culturally
1: Yeah, I don't have the answers to that. But it reminds me of all the octopi when you think of like hentai porn, and there's like octopus, you know, dildos and tentacle dildos. And there's, and there's the whole world of that online, and like on Etsy. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, so one other thing I wanted to add to this discussion was I did an event with the sex toy company Tenga a few years ago, which is a brand that's based in Japan. And I had a chance to meet the founder of the company and he talked a little bit about his vision behind it. And he talked about how the reason he created his toys to look the way that they do was because he thought that it would make people more comfortable engaging with them because they don't look like human body parts and you know people have a lot of shame and other things as we've discussed uh tied up in sex in the human body and so he thought that that was a way of helping people to engage more with the toys so you know maybe that's another part of the explanation at least kind of in the modern era but it's so fascinating to hear you talk about you know this trend toward toys not looking like sex toys has, has certainly been around a lot longer than that
1: yeah yeah and then and the Tanga eggs, I've bought those before. Their their products are beautiful. They look like architecture. Some of the sleeves, I mean, they're gorgeous.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I have a whole like drawer full of <laughs> Tenga toys and like all, all these other toys because, you know, one of the perks of my job is that I get all of these like free sex toy samples. So uh, I'm actually running out of room and, and especially during quarantine, I've gotten so many shipments. Like I need to rent a storage locker just to, to, to store all of these toys. But yeah, it hazarded the job. Too many sex toys.
1: That's a great hazard.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about the history of sex toys let's talk a little bit about the future where are sex toys headed and how are they going to continue to evolve in the years ahead do you have any sense of that from the digging that you've done and trends that you've seen and observed
1: yeah so i mean where sex toys are headed you know, it's hard to know. Obviously, we have VR porn, teledildonics, you know, one of the coolest sex toys that I'm actually writing a story about right now, like talk about sex toys of the future. This is a strap on that is connected through an app and it will actually get an erection through a motor in its balls. Um, Whoa. I know, I know it's crazy. <laughs> and um, it comes to market in spring. And basically your partner, so you can either give an erection with your um, app or your partner can. And then you can set it so like they can't give you an erection like while well, you're giving a presentation at work. You know, like like that wouldn't be good. No. But uh, but yes, yeah, so there are things like that. But that, that's one of the newest sex toys that I think of out there. I mean, a lot of teledildonics, you know, maybe full bodysuit sex toys. What I am hopeful for is that sex dolls for women will become more of a thing. There's a lot of innovation or there's some innovation in sex dolls for men, like the real doll, and there are some male sex dolls. But I think sex dolls that weigh less and that are you know, more appealing to women, that's where I see, hopefully, some innovation.
0: Yeah, and I think you're absolutely spot on that a big direction for sex toys, and we've seen this happening for years now is that incorporation of even more technology into the toys and so the the long distance remote controlled or bluetooth controlled sex toys are becoming more affordable and more popular and people use them for different purposes like you can use it in a long distance relationship to provide stimulation when you can't physically be together some people use them as a form of discrete public play like for example in my sex toy drawer one of the samples i received was a remote control old butt plug and so you know i I know that some people like to insert and then go out to i don't know dinner or, or bar with their partner and you know they can provide stimulation like throughout the evening at random intervals so you know there's all kinds of ways that technology is being incorporated and that people are finding opportunities to add more novelty to their sex life and then certainly the the dolls and robots are another interesting direction and i I think it's going to raise a lot of important research questions because we don't know what 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 is the ultimate effect of sex dolls and robots when people start engaging with them and what if they start feeling emotional connection to them and you know how does that change the course of our intimate lives going forward and you know we don't have the answers to this and we won't know the answers to this for some time but then there's also that question and i'm not sure we want to get into this issue because it's very complex and controversial and people have very strong opinions about it but there's that question of sex dolls that look like uh, children essentially that pedophiles might use and you know there are some who argue that that might actually be a beneficial thing in the sense that it provides a sexual outlet and so then they will not engage in actual acts of child molestation but then you also have people on the other side who say no that's just going to make them want to do it even more and increase their likelihood of sexual offending and just out of curiosity do you have any Mm -hmm. thoughts or sense on that argument or those competing arguments that are being made?
1: Yeah, I mean, I God, it's so complex. So I'm not enough of an expert to know, but I think that we shouldn't immediately like there's kind of this knee jerk, like, oh, we need to ban all child sex dolls because they will lead to offending. And I don't think from what I've seen just from researching, like a little bit of research on this, there isn't enough data to show either way. That they will cause people to offend more or that they will prevent it so in before you know i mean if if all our policy should be informed by science we need to figure out if a child sex doll could actually prevent a pedophile from molesting someone i mean that would be a social good right like that's you know it's a doll who cares so i mean if there's a possibility for that, then that's something we need to look into. If it could cause them to molest more, then obviously we need to ban them, you know? So like, I think we need more data on it, but I don't think we should just, you know, there are people, there are people calling for outright bans on child sex dolls, on s- female sex dolls in general. There's some feminists who say that that objectifies women. I don't agree with that at all. So we need, we need to study it more.
0: Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right that you know, there are very strong arguments on both sides, but none of them are based in data because the data don't yet exist. And so we don't know what uh, the actual answer is there. So I appreciate you, the nuance that you bring to your answers. And I like you, Hallie, because you know your shit. So <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's a couple other things that I want to get into, including some common questions people have about sex toys. And one that I get pretty frequently from readers of my blog this comes from female identify readers who ask, can I get addicted to my vibrator? What are your thoughts on that question? I know that this is a, a common thing that comes up and people even often ask their doctors about it. So what have you learned about that issue?
1: Yeah, so, so there's a couple of things. One, people have been worried about this issue for, you know, as long as... Well, as long as vibrators have been openly used sexually for so like 40, 50 years, that was a huge concern. And I think, so is there evidence you can become addicted? Like, what does that mean? I mean, I think when people ask that question, what they're asking is, are they going to stop, you know, being able to orgasm with a human? I, I think that's what underlies that. I don't know if you agree with that.
0: I think so. That That's my sense of it too, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so that actually comes from the fear of vibrators that people have had for for 50 years, which is our vibrators going to replace humans, which is a fear that comes out that's that's much bigger with sex robots because they look like humans or sex dolls. But yes, I mean, my my feeling and from reading some literature on this is you can, you know, make yourself get used to the extreme stimulation from a vibrator and that's the only way you can orgasm and you're used to it that way and then when you're with a partner their tongue isn't physically capable of doing that and then you struggle or you know whatever way you are orgasm with them you struggle with it and from what I have studied about it the way to cure that is stop using your vibrator for a week <laughs> and then you'll be fine. So is that real addiction? Like, no, like you can't tell someone with, uh, you know, who's addicted to cigarettes, just stop using it for seven days, and you'll get over it. So no, you can't really be addicted. Just use your vibrator mindfully. And also interrogate why you're so worried about being addicted. Is it because you're afraid you won't be able to have relationships? Like where is this coming from?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great answer and all great advice and suggestions. And and, and I totally agree that, you know, the addiction label isn't appropriate there. And for people who are concerned about this, a couple of other things that they might try would be to mix up and try different forms of stimulation. With the goal of becoming erotically flexible, you know, and and seeing there as being multiple paths or routes to pleasure and to orgasm. And also, if you find that you just really like the sensation from a vibrator and that's like your go to way to orgasm, great. Like, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And it doesn't mean that you have to choose the vibrator or partnered sex because you can incorporate vibrators into partnered sex. And so that's where I think couples' vibrators can be. A great solution for people in relationships where one partner really likes or needs or enjoys uh, that kind of stimulation. So I think there are also potential workarounds there where if you feel like that really is essential, then incorporate it into sex.
1: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And I think a lot of, you know, I've even talked to friends about this where they're afraid their male partner is going to be intimidated by a vibrator. And that's still a concern today. And most men, I, I don't know. and I, I think most men are not intimidated. And if they are, well, that's too bad. The vibrator's coming in the bedroom. That's my <laughs> response. Like, okay, yeah. great.
0: I, I <laughs> mean, if he's threatened or intimidated, you've learned something important about him. And maybe that's not the right sexual partner or relationship for you.
1: Yeah. Like, if he's intimidated by a vibrator, what else is he going to be intimidated by that's, like, non-threatening? You know, like, he's insecure. And um, we used to recommend getting a vibrator smaller than your partner's dick as a way to get over the intimidation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I don't know if that actually works.
0: Uh, well, it's funny. I actually just did a q and a with with this specific question, the scenario that you raised about a woman who said she can only reach orgasm when she uses a clitoral vibrator, and the penetrative intercourse with her partner alone does nothing for her but she doesn't know how to bring up the vibrator to her partner because they've never had that discussion before and they've been in a long term relationship and this has been going on for years where she's having this very Unsatisfying sex and doesn't know how to tell her partner what she wants. So, I talked a lot about you know how you start these conversations about sex, and that's something that I really dive into uh, in my book. Tell me what you want. So, if you want some concrete icebreakers and tools, you can check out the book to find out more about that. But another common question that I get about sex toys is: is it safe to share them? So, should sex toys be something that you only use with yourself, or is it okay? Is it safe? to share them with a partner in terms of things like STI transmission risk. What's your sense of that?
1: Yeah. So I've looked into this a lot. I go with kind of sex workers who have interviewed about this and also experts as well is like, if you're going to share with the partner that you're, you know, bodily you're fluid bonded with, that's okay. But if you're sharing with multiple partners bring condoms to put on the sex toys, that's like the easiest way to do it. And for other sex toys, for things that are non porous, you can actually like sanitize like a a medical grade silicone dildo, you can actually clean even cleaning it just with soap and water would work. So you can share them. But you know, use these different things if it's with multiple partners.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's spot on and it lines up with what I've seen in the research. I know I saw a study a few years ago, I believe it was conducted by Debbie Herbenick and colleagues, and they tested a couple of different vibrators, I believe, that women had used during solo play. And then they tested the vibrators afterwards for presence of HPV, the human papillomavirus virus. And they tested them immediately after use and then also after being cleaned and sitting out for a day. And what they found was that even after cleaning, that HPV was still found to be present on a significant number of the samples. I don't recall the exact figure off the top of my head, but I think that that is compelling evidence for why you want to take safety precautions if you're sharing toys with casual partners or multiple partners and you know using condoms and cleanliness and all of this stuff is really important when it comes to that. So I think you're right there. So we're running short on time but there's one other topic i wanted to get into really quickly which is the next book that you're working on which is all about the history of gigolos and when that comes out i'm sure i'm gonna have to have you back to talk about it but can you tell us why you decided to write a book on that subject and maybe give us a little teaser of anything particularly fascinating that you found so far
1: yeah yeah so i was living in berlin with my boyfriend we were um Doing research at the Max Planck Institute and sex work is legal there. And there were ads for female sex workers all over the city. And I wanted a male sex worker. I thought it said this is like patriarchal heaven for straight men, even for gay men, it was it was better than for women. And I was like, why aren't there brothels for women? Why can't I? You know, and there were, and I did go to a female rub and tug there, and it was great. So there were some things like that, but not nearly as much. And so that was like kind of the seed for my book. And then the kind of interesting things I found out, well, I've been writing. Rudolph Valentino was a gigolo. Uh, Billy Wilder was a gigolo. So I found out all these celebrities were. And I found out even the history of gigolos, women have been paying for sex from men from Roman times. They would pay gladiators. Yeah. So I found some really, really fascinating stuff.
0: Oh my gosh, I can't wait to read it. As as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of a few things. Uh, so I used to teach a study abroad course in Amsterdam on sex and culture. And in Amsterdam, sex work is legal. And when you're in the red light district, at least this was pre-COVID, I don't know how the pandemic is changing sex work in the Netherlands. Uh, you know, that's going to be a whole other interesting topic to, to dive into and explore. But in the red light district in the Netherlands, you have these floor to ceiling windows just lining the streets and you have women standing behind them who are scantily clad and, you know, they beckon people to come in and, you know, then they close the curtain and we'll have a sexual interaction. And and there's, like, all kinds of things I could say about my observations uh, having been in the red-light district. But, you know, when I take students there and we walk through the the red-light district, a lot of them ask, like, well, where are the windows with the men, right? Why are all the sex workers women or... And there's a small number who are trans women, but there are no uh, standing behind the windows. And... I take my students to this place called the Prostitution Information Center, where they have a chance to talk to actual sex workers about what their experiences are like and ask any questions they have. And what the sex workers tell us is that, you know, they tried that experiment, but nobody visited the men. Um, And, you know, their, their primary audience tended to be gay men who would visit, but sex is easier to find for gay men because you know men tend to have more willingness or openness to casual sex and so you know having to pay for it was like seen as this extra barrier to to having sex so it was an experiment that didn't really work and i think we saw something similar a few years ago i think it might have been the moonlight uh funny ranch in in nevada where they tried having a a man who worked at the brothel there and it was announced with great fanfare in the media, but it was an experiment that was quickly disbanded because he wasn't getting any business. So is that something that you've kind of seen as well that, you know, sometimes when they try having these male sex workers that, you know, the audience isn't necessarily there. And I don't know, is that a marketing issue or what? I don't know.
1: Well, yeah, no, I've studied both of those things as well. And, part of it and in fact in the 70s they tried men and and legal brothels in nevada as well but what i think women are not wanting this public you know yeah. declaration of going into a brothel and pu- buying sex that's what like it's more on the down low for them so they like go to spas and massage parlors for women that are just marketed as spas, and then they have sex with the masseuse. That's more of women's style where, because there hasn't been this whole infrastructure of prostitution for female clients like there has been for men. There's much more of a stigma, and they're much less likely to do something if other people can find out about it. And, And that's my sense of it. And I've talked to a lot of clients who say even their best friends don't know they're doing this. So, so there's it, there's such a shame because women are the ones who are supposed to be the seducers. The, the idea of paying for sex can be shameful for both, for all genders. But um, for women, when you're supposed to be the seducer and attracting the male, there's an extra level of shame, I believe.
0: Yeah, and I, I suspect you're right with that. And now I'm thinking about some of the recent research I've seen on women who buy sex, and there's very little on this at all but in one of the most recent studies I saw the women who were patronizing sex workers they weren't looking for something quick service they were looking for something that had more of an emotional element to it as well where it's it's kind of like the boyfriend experience to some degree if you will so it's it's more than just sex but we also know that a lot of men who patronize sex workers want that emotional connection too right and you know i'm gonna have to do a whole episode on sex work at at some point and what it is that people are looking for because it's often not just about sex itself. And there's so many other things that go into it. And it's really fascinating to explore some of the gender dynamics that are at play there as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it it is interesting. I mean, for uh, gigolos I've talked to said that their average appointment for a woman is like four hours, when a man going to a straight man going to a sex worker, it's an hour. So, I mean, that plays into this idea of, you know, wanting the boyfriend experience.
0: Yeah, and one other quick stat that I can add to that uh, from having taught my study abroad courses in the Netherlands and and talking to some of the sex workers there, you know, what you buy at a window in the red light district is 15 minutes, but the average guy who goes in is only in there for six minutes, right? (laughs) Which (laughs) I find to be... Absolutely fascinating and astounding. Like they're leaving nine minutes on the table. So yeah, like, uh, again, I'm gonna have to do a whole episode on that at some point. But I think that does point to a difference in the ways in which men and women might approach sex work and what it is that they're looking for.
1: Yes. Six minutes versus four hours. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. There's a big difference.
0: (laughs) Yep. Well, thank you so much for this absolutely fascinating conversation, Hallie. It was my pleasure to have you here. So can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and get a copy of your book?
1: Yeah. um, You can get a copy of my book like on Amazon or any websites like that. And I've got a website, HallieLieberman.com, or my name, Hallie Lieberman, at Twitter or Instagram.
0: Well, thank you again for your time. Be sure to check out Hallie's book, Buzz, for an even more in-depth look and deep dive into the history of sex toys. Also thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Lehmiller and Instagram at Justin J. Lehmiller. That's L-E-H Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, for a deep dive into the science of sexual fantasies and for tips on how to communicate about them with your partner. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.